children are dismissed to go to junior church. Well, this is going to be my uh, last month of preaching to you folks. Uh, but it gives me an opportunity to sort of go back to basics, I guess. I was talking to Gordon Hugenberger the other day, and he says, what are you going to preach on? And I said, I don't know yet. He says, it's your last sermons, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, he goes do the gospel, do the gospel. <laughs> so I said, I said, calm down. I said, I will. I'll, I'll do the gospel. So for the next uh, few weeks, uh, I'll be preaching about the gospel. The beautiful gospel. The excellent gospel. The good news. I thought I would start at the beginning to talk about the gospel. So we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. So why don't you turn with me to uh, chapter 3 of Genesis. We're going to go around the uh, poetic prologue of the book and get to the meat in uh, Genesis 3, verses 14 through 24. Ten verses, but I'll be preaching primarily on verses 14 and 15. And so the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Then the man called his wife, then the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, and he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way, every way to the guard, the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to have your word, uh, and Lord, we thank you too for your Holy Spirit, because uh, some of this stuff is uh, above our pay grade. So, Lord, thank you for having mercy upon us, uh, not only in your gospel, but in every aspect of the life that you give us. We thank you, Father, that you love us and care for us so magnificently. 
Help us this morning as we think about these things, Lord, to be true, uh, to uh, cling to you, to seek after you, to love you, and to cherish all the things that you are and that you have done for us, your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My family used to vacation in Canada years ago. My dad was a fisherman, and we'd uh, go up to a place called Bob Cajun, uh, which is in uh, Ontario, and we'd fish for two weeks. We'd fish in the morning, and we'd fish at noon, and we'd fish in the evening. We fished all the time. We fished in every way possible. We trolled. (laughs) We used used, uh, uh, floats, and uh, we used uh, drag lines, and we used gigs, and we, we fished the living daylights out of the ponds of Canada. We rarely caught anything. But it seemed to me that it was sort of a philosophic endeavor, more than actually looking for something to eat, you know. So it helped to build me into the man that I am today. Uh, yeah, we won't talk about that anymore. <laughs> But uh, we stayed at this little cottage, which was uh, owned by a fellow named Reed. Can't remember his last name uh, anymore, but Reed was a fine fellow, uh, sort of an outdoorsman. Uh, He had these little cottages uh, along the lake that he had fixed up and rented out to people. And we we had gone for years and years, so we remember when they were little more than than little shacks with an outhouse to really nice uh, uh, cottages with bathrooms and kitchens and everything. So it was really quite nice. Hard-working man. Uh, about, you know, five or six years into our ventures up there, he, he got married. Uh, lovely lady. Uh, and they started to have children. And uh, if the second year that they had kids, his little daughter was about two years old or so. Uh, and uh, being living by the lake, uh, there was always a, a concern with little children. And, and the water. So uh, we would try to watch out for our own, of course. Uh, but Reed's kids, we were playing all over the place all the time. So uh, at one point, uh, we were playing down by the shore, and I looked, and there on the dock was Reed's youngest little girl, a two-year-old. Uh, she was playing on the dock, you know, as kids do, sort of absent-mindedly, but seemingly having a good time. So I went back to what I was uh, doing, and then I looked up again, and she was gone. Didn't know where she went. Uh, it really didn't strike me because kids come and go, as you know. So uh, I, I didn't think much about it. And then I heard this cry. It was Reed. He looked out on the lake and saw that his daughter wasn't there on the dock anymore. So he threw off his tools in a cry of anguish. Started running towards the lake. And as he ran. He was knocking things out of his way. The picnic table chair, the lawnmower that was in the way. They went flying. And he ran out to the dock and dove in and came out with the limp form of his daughter. And he rushed to the shore and he threw her down onto the ground and started pushing on her and giving her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And, and in a moment she coughed a little bit and, and then came too. And the story ended so wonderfully that the little girl was saved by her dad. This reminds me of what God does in Genesis chapter 3. 
we, we see God after the sin in the Garden of Eden. God is coming. And if you, if you go with Jeff Niehaus's translation of that passage, in the, in the fury of the storm, God knows that his children are in dire danger. And he comes running. He comes running in the power of the storm and things are getting out of his way as he comes and you, you can't help hear him coming. Adam and Eve take this as, as a warning that God is coming in the fury of anger. And you could take it that way because God is disappointed in what his children have done. But at the same time, you've got to realize that what has happened here has put his children in peril, peril for their lives. So God, in coming in the garden at that moment, is not coming to deliver wrath on his children, but to deliver mercy to them. So the scene opens. The first exercise of judgment and mercy. The Lord first addresses the serpent. The creator offers no mercy to Satan, but immediate judgment. No opportunity to confess his guilt. But instead, he immediately judges the one who attacked him by tempting his image bearers. First, God curses the serpent above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. As the animal that strove to bring ruin to God's good creation, it is fitting for the servant to be punished for its deeds. Notably, it is given to eat dust. Meaning, not that dirt provides sustenance to the creature, but instead alluding to its defeat. From Old Testament scripture, we recognize eating dust as a judgment. It's a biblical metaphor for humiliation. You are as low as you can go. And the only thing worthy of your food is dirt. Figurative language here is a clue that the curse upon the serpent is not simply an explanation for why men fear snakes. Furthermore, we should not quickly pass over the, the presence of a talking serpent in the Garden of Eden. Because that doesn't happen every day. Something more profound is going on here than a conflict between humans and a serpent. Genesis 3.15 reveals man versus the servant. serpent is a cosmic struggle. It is God who perpetuates enmity between the human race and its primal enemy. The seed of woman will be bruised by the destructive efforts of the seed of the serpent, but the woman's descendants will fight back. Every time a snake bites, we will be reminded of the war between God and the one who first tempted us to sin. So it's kind of an encouragement. We don't see it as that way often, but it is. God says, this will not stand. And my promise to you is that I will fix this. When we see the serpent licking the dust of defeat, we are reminded this struggle will not last forever. The seed of the woman has bruised the head of his enemy, and he will crush it. Mankind is given the tactical advantage over the serpent. There will be real war, but God will graciously give his people the victory. And in verse 15, 
we find the Proto-Evangelicum, the first gospel. This first gospel proclaims that God's people will finally triumph over the serpent. The seed of the woman is a collective noun, indicating corporate victory. However, if left to ourselves, we cannot win this war. It takes Jesus, Eve's seed par excellence, to deliver the crushing blow. And if we are in him, we share in and extend Christ's victory. After God pronounces the consequences for sin in the garden, the Lord God then made for Adam and Eve and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. An angelic guard is set so that they may not partake of the tree of life without permission, as they did the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they are sent out to work the earth and to fill it, but now they suffer from the loss of perfect fellowship with their heavenly Father. But the investiture and the promise, the the clothing of Adam and Eve saying to them, yes, you have sinned, but you are still my children. You have sinned and there are consequences, but I will be the remedy. And through Eve's seed, one like you will cause hope, will give you salvation. God will save how they did not know at the time until Jesus, the seed of Eve. From Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Two thousand years ago, the Lord Jesus won the decisive victory over Satan through his death and resurrection. The devil is destined for eternal destruction, even though he now futilely assaults the people of God. While we must be aware of this threat, we must never fear him if we are in Christ. Moreover, the Lord calls us to fight against the devil through prayer and evangelism. Thinking about the gospel this morning. In New Testament terms, the gospel is the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the first gospel in the Garden of Eden refers to. It is Jesus. The work of Jesus plus the benefits of that work and how they can be appropriated to us by faith and by faith alone. So the gospel in its very most narrow definition, it's the message about Jesus. Now there are other good things certainly that come from the relationship with Jesus, the kingdom of God, all of that. But specifically, if you look at what we call in the New Testament the kerygma or the apostolic proclamation of the gospel, it focuses on Christ, who he is, what he did, and how we benefit or how we receive his benefits. So if you 
talk to a person about accepting Christ and you can tell them that they will have peace in their soul, that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life, all those things may be true, but they are the fruit of the gospel and not the gospel itself. The gospel is about Jesus, the mystery revealed, the hope that we have. Paul's told us in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, these are the things that are of first importance. And he states facts with then, then with that inter- then he states facts with an interpretation. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and the third day he rose from the dead. That's, he starts there all the time in these explanations for what the gospel is. And, and that is in the New Testament, or at least in Paul's letters, the simplest foundation of the gospel, or the evangelion in Greek, the evangelicum in Latin, the god spell in Old Saxon, the gospel in Old English, or the good news, plain and simple. The good news. What is the good news? Well, the good news is what happened in the Garden of Eden isn't the last word. What happened in the Garden of Eden prompted God to visit mercy upon the human race. He could have destroyed them at that moment and started over, but he didn't. He came to their rescue and offered them salvation and promised that that salvation would come through a seed of the woman, a seed par excellence, Jesus Christ. So what is the good news? Well, that the inheritance hinted at by God in the garden investiture is a mystery revealed in Jesus Christ, that we will not be left as people barred from fellowship with God in his home. The damage inflicted by Satan and our uh, great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, will be remedied. Now, Paul, in his letters, is passing on what he had received. This isn't something that he has made up. Paul has received it from the Lord, and he is passing it on to us. Paul is not giving us some views he has worked out for himself. He is passing on what he has been told. This is the kerygma, or the proclamation, of the gospel. The gospel preached by the early church. Paul sees it as of first importance. Without this message, we do not have the essential Christian position. The first point in it is that Christ died for our sins. That is to say, his death was an atoning death. The cross is at the heart of the gospel. According to the scriptures, it shows that this was no afterthought. The saving death of Christ was foretold long before Paul came around in sacred scripture. It was not death as such, but Christ's death as a saving event that the scripture foretold and the church proclaimed. So for us, the gospel is Christ, who he is, what he did, and how we receive his benefits. Renewal, if you will, is about the intentional dedication to the main thing. Everything springs from the gospel. 
Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, and how we receive his benefits. That's the gospel. When we preach the gospel, we are preaching that. It is Christ, who he is, what he did, and how we receive his benefits. Coming weeks, we'll expand on those things. We'll talk about who is Jesus and what he did and how we gain advantage from what he did. We'll be talking about that in the next three weeks. So let us pray. Dear Jesus, thy main plan and the end of thy will is to make Christ glorious and beloved in heaven, where he is now ascended, where one day all the elect will behold his glory and love and glorify him forever. Though here we love him but little, may this be our portion at last. In this world thou hast given us a beginning. One day it will be perfected in the realm above. Thou hast helped us to see and to know Christ, though obscurely, to take him, to receive him, possess him and love him, to bless him in our hearts, with our mouths, in our lives. Let us study and stand for discipline and all the ways of worship out of love for Christ and to show our thankfulness to seek and to know his will from love, to hold it in love and daily to care for and keep this state of heart. Thou hast led us to place all our nature and happiness in oneness with Christ, and in having heart and mind centered only on him, in being like him, in communicating good to others. This is our heaven on earth. But we need the force and energy and impulses of thy spirit to carry us on the way to our Jerusalem. Here it is our duty to be as Christ in this world to do what he would do, to live as he would live, and to walk in love and meekness. Then he would be known. Then we would have peace in death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.